This morning from Romans, beginning chapter 4. What then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. This is the word of God for the people of God. Last Sunday, Bishop Robert Snazy stood here as our Barton Clinton Gordy lecturer. Bishop Snazy tells the story of a young woman walking into a church for the very first time and how as soon as she gets in the door, she stops. She's feeling awkward. She's wrangling a baby. She's unswaddling the child a little bit and the child cries out and her anxiety grows. She's thinking about going to worship for the first time. But she doesn't know where the sanctuary is. She doesn't even know where the bathroom is. She doesn't recognize anyone who's coming and going as she stands there wondering if maybe she has made a mistake. She begins to think maybe she shouldn't have come at all. And yet she has a deeper need. She wants to worship. She wants to know God better. She wants to pray. She yearns for more in her life, and she's in search, hoping this might be the place. She needs a little help. She needs some inspiration. She's looking for some direction, and she's taking a step, hoping that this could be it, that this could be the place. What is going to happen to her as she moves a step closer and yet so much of her is filled with anxiety? What might happen next? We're reading from the letter that Paul wrote to the early Christians in Rome and he gives us a clue as to what might happen next. It's helpful to remember that Paul is writing this letter to a group of Christians he does not know, so he's not sure exactly what they believe. He's making a case for his understanding of the gospel and what God has done in Christ in the world and in his life. Our best scholars tell us he's writing probably 20, 25 years after the crucifixion in Christ, the mid-50s of the first century. By that time in the life of the church, there's at least two different wings, if you will, two different interpretations of what God is doing in Christ. There's one group, we could call them Jewish Christians, who have been people of God, have been living a life of faith according to the Jewish legal codes, who believe that God has done something new in Christ, and yet the codes are still important by which to live There's another group who have not been part of the people of God in terms of Judaism. We could call them Gentile Christians. They believe in the grace of God that has come 
through Christ as their way to salvation. Paul goes into extensive arguments in this letter he's writing to the Romans to try to explain how God is working with both groups. Paul concludes God is going to save all of Israel and bring those outside of Judaism, the Gentiles, into the family of faith. We have stepped into Paul's argument about all of that this morning. But since Paul was raised as a Jew, was a Pharisee, was very zealous in his faith, he was persecuting those who would be followers of Christ early in his days of ministry. But then he has this powerful encounter with God coming to him through Christ and it changes the way he understands God is at work in the world and it changes his view of who Jesus of Nazareth is and what God was doing through him and he feels in particular a calling or a leading to go to those outside of Judaism to the Gentiles not considered to be a part of God's family at that point and preach to them this gospel this good news he's come to know about the love of God coming to them through Jesus Christ the passage we read this morning Paul is making this argument trying to explain to these two different wings of the church how he understands what God is doing in the world Paul uses Abraham as the ultimate illustration of justification based on faith in God or coming to faith through God's grace revealed in Jesus Christ. He chooses Abraham because he's a perfect example for the text says that Abraham has been justified or is in right relationship with God and that's before the law has been given so he's a good example for Paul's argument Plus, he's the undisputed father of the children of God, the people of Israel. So he stands as a supreme example of faith. So Paul goes all the way back in the Jewish scriptures to the book of Genesis, where the story of Abram becoming Abraham is told. And he quotes from the text in what we read this morning. It's in verse 3. For what does Scripture say, Paul writes, and then you see quotation marks, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed or trusted or had faith in God and was reckoned to him as righteousness or right standing, put him in alignment with God, or we could say today that's what brought him into a saving relationship with God. few months ago one of our guests here waited for me in the hallway after worship after everyone else had come through and I had been shaking hands and talking with people he came over to me he confided that he wanted to be a Christian but he was pretty sure he was not good enough to qualify and he began to tell me about his life and that he had done some bad things some criminal things he had not lived a stellar life by any stretch of the imagination. He had hurt himself and hurt others in terms of the choices he's made in his life. But he was seeking to do better. But he was concerned that somehow because of everything else that had gone before that he would not qualify. You see, that is such a common 
misunderstanding of the gospel and of the Christian faith. And in fact, it's just the opposite of what Paul and the gospels tell us, bring us to faith. He's got the sequence mixed up. He thinks he has to be good before God is going to love him. But what scripture tells us is that God created us and God loves us before we even know it. And God is at work for our good even before we recognize it. Throughout scripture, you hear this gospel proclaim that God loves us first. That God is at work in us before we even know it. And that God continues to work in our lives for the rest of our lives. Because that is who God is. Not based on who we are, but who God is. That is a God of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness. And this moment of salvation or justification by faith comes when we accept God's love as alive in our lives. And we recognize that's what makes us whole. That's what brings us salvation or healing. And that's what justifies us or puts us in right relationship with God. The sequence is important. Righteousness or right relationship with God comes as a gift. See if you can hear it as I read you what Paul wrote again. <clears throat> Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to one who without works trust God, who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Do you know the name Paul Tillich? Tillich was one of the great thinkers of the last century. He was a philosopher and a theologian. Paul Tillich's father was a Lutheran pastor. He did well in school growing up as a Lutheran pastor's son but rather than becoming a pastor he becomes a university professor he is a writer of philosophy and theology he's teaching at a university in Germany when Hitler comes to power shortly after that the Nazis dismiss him from his teaching post in an attempt to silence his voice some people in America had been reading Tillich's writings. Some of our seminaries offered him a teaching post and he moved to the, United <coughs> to the United States. He wrote several books on systematic theology and philosophy on the human dilemma and how we live. But he also wrote a very short piece, just like three pages long. It's a sermon on sin and grace. After he makes the case that sin is a state of separation or estrangement from ourselves, our neighbors, and from God. He turns to the concept of grace. Now, he's drawing from this very letter from which we read today, this letter of Paul. I want to read you a few sentences of what Tillich wrote. Where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound, says Paul in the same letter in which he describes the unimaginable power of separation and self-destruction within society and within the individual soul. He does not say these words because 
sentimental interest demand a happy ending for everything tragic. He says them because they describe the most overwhelming and determining experience of his life. In the picture of Jesus as the Christ, which appeared to him at the moment of his greatest separation from other men, from himself and God, he found himself accepted in spite of his being rejected. And when he found that he was accepted, he was able to accept himself and to be reconciled to others. The moment in which grace struck him and overwhelmed him, he was reunited with that to which he belonged and from which he was estranged. Then a little later in the sermon, Tillich describes grace as coming to every one of us in the most vulnerable times of our lives, of times of great sadness or despair, of times of exhaustion or times when we have caused great pain or been wounded and experienced great pain. Listen to what Tillich writes. He says, sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. Do not, do not ask for the name now, perhaps you will find it later. Do not try to do anything now, perhaps later you will do much. Do not seek for anything. Do not perform anything. Do not intend anything. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. If that happens to us, Tillich writes, we experience grace. Paul, in his writings, the gospel writers and Christians throughout the ages have proclaimed that no matter who you are or what you have done, God loves you and offers you abundant life through Jesus Christ. You are accepted. You are loved. God's grace and mercy and forgiveness are available to you now and forever. To experience God's grace is to believe in this good news that's contained in the Scriptures and to accept this magnanimous offer as a free gift revealed to us through Christ. One of the phrases we use when we begin Lent during that Ash Wednesday service as we prepare in this season of repentance and penitence before Easter says, repent and believe the good news. Another one says, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Or, remember you are dust and to dust you will return. All of those phrases are trying to say the same thing. That is, we have equal standing before God. We all have the same standing before God. None are saved by good works. We are all saved. By God's grace. Or as Paul says, we are justified by grace through faith. In the Ash Wednesday services, a few of the lines we read go like this. Almighty God, you have created us out of the dust of the earth. 
Grant that these ashes may be to us a sign of our mortality and penitence, so that we may remember that only by your gracious gift are we given everlasting life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul goes on to say, none of us can boast because we all stand here based on an invitation from God. None of us can say we are better than another because we are all here through the love and mercy of God. All of this comes to us as God's gift. Paul makes it clear that he's experienced God's grace and love and he wants to pass it on. Bishop Snazy has written several books. One of them, the most recent one he's revised and updated, it's called Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations. The first practice he talks about, he calls radical hospitality. And he says lots of churches offer a welcome, but what's radical is the depth and quality and authenticity of our welcome that comes from people who know they have been welcomed by Christ and they want to extend that love to others. That takes us back to the young mother standing just inside the door of the church, wondering, seeking, could it be possible that in this place she might experience God's love and God's acceptance? 